Welcome to Clippings, the official podcast of the Council for Nail Disorders, where Drs. April Schachtel and Catherine Stiff take a closer look at articles and clippings published on all things nail disease. Listeners can suggest articles for this podcast or topics of discussion by sending an email to kristen.cnd at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of the Clippings Podcast, where we review nail papers and present them to you. I'm April Schachtel, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Catherine Stiff. Hello, listeners. Hope everyone's doing well. We are covering a couple of medical dermatology papers today. My article is titled, Nail Changes in Pemphigus and Bullous Pemphigoid, a Single Center Study in China. The authors are Shan Kao et al. from the Department of Dermatology at Shandong Academy of Medical Sciences in Shandong, China. It was published in the journal Frontiers in Medicine in September of 2022. So, pemphigus and bullous pemphigoid are two of the most common types of autoimmune blistering diseases. They form from the presence of autoantibodies and result in blisters and skin fragility. Pemphigus vulgaris and pemphigus foliaceus are two of the most common types of pemphigus and are characterized by circulating antibodies against desmoglions 1 and 3, whereas bullous pemphigoid is due to circulating antibodies against BP 180 and 230. So if these target antigens are expressed in the hyponychium, nail matrix, and or proximal nail fold, this can cause nail changes. Previous studies have reported incidences ranging from 13 to 50% of pemphigus vulgaris patients having nail changes, and 70% of patients with bullous pemphigoid having nail changes. For this study, the authors aimed to investigate the clinical characteristics of the nail changes and their relationship with disease severity in Chinese patients who had pemphigus or bullous pemphigoid. They collected clinical data from 191 patients with autoimmune blistering diseases. 108 of the patients had pemphigus and 83 had bullous pemphigoid. The diagnoses were made on the basis of clinical manifestations and the results of histologic and immunologic exams like DIF and ELISA. They compared these to 200 age and sex match control subjects. They found nail changes in 77% of patients overall, approximately equally between pemphigoid and pemphigus. They also found nail changes in 14% of the control subjects, which entirely consisted of onychomycosis. Bose lines and perinichia were the most common nail changes seen, which were both observed in 22.5% of patients with autoimmune blistering diseases. Onycholysis and onychomycosis were the next most common findings seen in 21.5% of patients. One patient with bullous pemphigoid had a pterygium, and the other nail changes that they saw included onychorexis, subungual hemorrhage, longitudinal ridging, nail discoloration, periungual bullae, nail pitting, and Merkey's lines. They calculated an autoimmune bullous skin disorder intensity score and found that this did correlate with a higher severity of uh, autoimmune skin disease with the presence of nail changes in bullous pemphigoid. And it correlated more weakly with nail involvement in patients with overall autoimmune blistering disease. And it also correlated more weakly with pemphigus vulgaris patients. There was no significant correlation between nail changes and the severity of pemphigus foliaceus. And they did not find any correlation between nail changes and disease antibody titers in either pemphigus or pemphigoid. 
the highest autoimmune bolus disorder intensity score was seen in patients who had onychomycosis as their nail change. So to summarize, nail changes are seen commonly in patients with pemphigus and bolus pemphigoid, and they run a gamut, but the most common are going to be perinicchia, Bose lines, onycholysis, and onychomycosis. The onychomycosis may be partially related to immunosuppression for the underlying disease and is going to be seen more often in patients with more severe disease. There is a correlation between disease severity and the presence of nail changes, but not with antibody titers. My takeaway is that a good exam and sometimes fungal tests will be important so that we can determine if a patient needs more treatment of their inflammatory disease or if they need antifungal treatment for onychomycosis. And since the antibodies titers do not correlate with the nail changes, it is important as always to just treat the patient in front of us rather than the numbers. All right. Yeah, I enjoyed this article. And anecdotally, I've seen quite a few uh, patients with either pemphigus or pemphigoid with Bose lines or onychomodesis after flares. So. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Catherine, tell us what you read about. This month, I will discuss the article, Metastases to the Nail Unit and Distal Phalanx, a Systematic Review, by Kaya Curtis and Sherry Lipner, the very prolific Dr. Lipner. Uh, it was published in the Archives of Dermatological Research in October of 2022. As some background, cutaneous metastases from solid tumors occur in 1 to 5% of cancers, and acrometastases make up only 0.1% of all metastases. Metastases to the nail unit or distal phalanx are typically distant from the site of the primary malignancy and mimic other nail conditions. This systematic review found 244 cases of metastases to the distal phalanx or nail unit from 1900 to 2021. Of these 224 reports, 114 explicitly described nail unit involvement or included a photograph involving the nail, while the other 110 cases did not explicitly confirm the presence of nail involvement. The population was 66% men with an average age of 58 years. The hand was involved in 80% foot in 15% and both hands and feet in 5% of cases. The thumb and fourth digit were most commonly affected. Interestingly, multiple digits of the hands, feet, or both were affected in 21% of cases, and 14% of cases were bilateral. The most common symptom was pain or tenderness, and the most frequent clinical presentation was swelling, erythema, and ulceration. Nail plate changes such as elevation, destruction, and loosening or detachment were reported in 11% of cases, and infection was the most common differential diagnosis. X-ray was performed in almost all cases and typically showed bony involvement with destruction of the distal phalanx. Other diagnostic methods include biopsy or excision or amputation with histopathologic examination. The primary origins of malignancy included the lungs in 38% of cases, genitourinary tract organs in 19%, and gastrointestinal organs in 34%. 
The most common histology of primary malignancy was squamous cell carcinoma, followed by adenocarcinoma, then renal cell carcinoma. The average time between onset of symptoms and diagnosis was 2.4 months. So that's actually faster than I would have expected. Uh, 63% of patients had a known diagnosis of visceral malignancy prior to diagnosis of their nail unit metastases. And 55% of patients had a non-distal phalanx metastasis as well prior to presentation. Distal phalanx metastasis was the first metastatic finding for 45% of patients who had a known diagnosis of visceral malignancy. And in 32% of patients, a diagnosis of visceral malignancy was not yet made. So this distal phalanx metastasis was the only sign of visceral malignancy. Many patients had additional cutaneous metastases upon further exam. The most common treatment was amputation, followed by radiation and chemotherapy. Nearly 80% of patients died with a median survival time of only 3.4 months. In summary, metastasis to the nail unit or distal phalanx can present in multiple digits, is most often seen with lung cancer, and suggests the presence of widespread disease. Metastasis was rarely included in the differential diagnosis, so physicians should maintain a high index of suspicion, especially in patients presenting with single-digit onychodystrophy. Initial assessment should include x-ray imaging, biopsy of the nail bed or soft tissue, and a thorough full-body skin exam, as nearly half of patients have other cutaneous metastases. Awesome. I think we can be really important here by you know, helping make a diagnosis in those 45% of patients who aren't known to have metastatic disease by, you know, not delaying a punch biopsy of one of these things, which is not hard to do and could really make a big difference for diagnosis and treatment for these patients. Yes, definitely. All right. Thank you, Catherine, for joining me on this episode of Clippings. I want to thank our listeners for their attention To all our listeners, please share this podcast with your colleagues and trainees and let us know how we're doing, which articles you would like us to review on the show by contacting kristen.cnd at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter at Nail Disorders. 